We got things to improve on. There's time to get going to work. You know, get your bodies right, get your minds right. You know, we're coming out and we're gonna lick our wounds around here. Our goal every week is go one and zero. Our goal is to get better every week as a team, as a team, as the season progresses. That goal doesn't change. You know, you're talking about the big picture. Yeah, the big picture is the little picture. It's next week. Started off with Tyler Bischoff from ESPN Radio. Got behind the sticks uh, in a lot of situations and, and didn't execute. You know, we had a good plan and, and we just didn't didn't execute it. So, you know, obviously the turnovers uh, were a big deal and, and uh, that set us back. Bishy, Bishy. Just crushed my dreams. Boom. Sadness. That's the one. <laughs> Raiders are 4-2 and two after a win over the Broncos. But before we get into some more of the John Gruden resignation, Adam, can you uh, please explain to the audience who Stephen Money is? Uh, Stephen Money is the new mascot, apparently, of Station Sports, STN Sports, the sports betting app of Station Casinos. Um Stephen Money has appeared on billboards around town. Um, Stephen Money, it, it, if you want to see what he looks like, go to my Twitter at Adam Candy. But let me try to describe this to you. Stephen Money is an iPhone that has a face, a cartoon face, but the head essentially is also the chest, and he has shoulder pads and some unbelievably roided out arms. And this is their attempt to get people to bet with STN sports to say that it's Stephen money. I, this sounds like a, like a bad Aerosmith cover band, right? Like, Oh, it's Stephen money instead of Stephen Tyler. I, I don't really understand. It's worse I than I thought. It's, it is. It's, I, it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying. I first saw it 48 hours ago and it's burned into my brain and I wish I could get rid of it, but I can't. I think it's one of the funniest things I've seen. I think it's great. I love Stephen money. Why? I, I, uh, he's just why a, is Stephen why, Money is what? the real question. He's just a phone okay, with giant arms. No, but he, the, he, it's not even that he has giant arms. He also has the rest of a torso. Like, why, why does he have the rest of a torso behind his cell phone face? Phones are vertical these days, Jared. I'm Stephen so Money's confused. great. Stephen I, Money. I, put him at, uh, get him on the offensive line. He I, can play right guard for the Raiders. No, how, uh, why like, he, I feel... I feel like we should have one of those, uh, you know, one of those mascot get-togethers that has Hayreb and Chance and uh, and Cash, and Stephen Money should be there as security. You know, if, like he's the, like he's the bouncer. If they make a real like mascot, like a a human in a costume mascot of Stephen Money, he might run away with scariest mascot in Las <laughs> and Vegas. Bucket's eyes, man. Bucket's is pretty bad, but he might. Stephen Money might run Bucket's away. Bucket's eyes are literally off center. Yeah, what do you, what do you think Stephen Money's eyes are? Those no, aren't centered. He looks like he's giving you side face from a flat screen. I don't understand how this works. Not great. All right, now on the Raiders because John Gruden resigned, and there is some uh, interesting details about how these emails that John Gruden sent were leaked and the timing of when they were leaked. Uh, Mike Florio had a story about this because this all comes from the NFL's investigation into the Washington football team. 
Uh, according to Mike Florio, the NFL had these emails, these John Gruden emails, at the latest in July of 2021. This year, but in July. It took until October for anything to happen. And the timeline here is the first John Gruden email got leaked where he was uh, criticizing DeMarie Smith, used a racial trope in describing DeMarie Smith. Then the NFL sent emails, these emails, to the Raiders after they played the Bears that Sunday. More emails were leaked publicly through the media that John Gruden used misogynistic, uh, had misogynistic emails, used homophobic slurs, and so on, ultimately leading to his resignation. So... What do you think? Like, are we? We're trying to piece this together. What do you think happened here? Why did it take from July to October for these to become public in the NFL to leak these or give them to the Raiders? Either way, you want to look at it. Like, why did it take that long for anything to happen? It's a fair question to ask. I also believe it's a pretty good distraction being put out there by those who don't want to focus on, you know, what the content of all of this is. Um, but let's let's get into it. Uh, would the Raiders have reacted any differently if this came out in July? They would have reacted and said, you're going to do this to us right at the beginning of training camp? You're going to do this to us right when we're coming back for the season? How could you do this to us right now? So, yeah, if you do it to the Raiders now versus if you do it to the Raiders uh, in July, I think the Raiders are going to react the same way. You shouldn't be doing this when you're doing this. Um, I just can't, I can't get too far into it. I, like in the end, we're talking about the mechanics of something coming to light. That frankly, it's a good thing that they came to light in the long run because we continue to shine a spotlight onto Bruce Allen's emails, and now we've had this long list of emails coming out uh, between Bruce Allen and the general counsel of the NFL that shows that this isn't about one coach or a couple of guys in a locker room talking about this. This goes all the way up to the NFL's chief lawyer who's saying these things. It shows how pervasive the culture is overall. So I don't know why. I don't know why now. I don't know how. But I know that I'm glad that it is because the only way we're going to deal with any of this stuff is if more of it comes out. And I, I just to serve that greater purpose, I just can't get that worried about the timing. Yeah, so two things. First off, on the timing of this and the idea that it's a bad time for the Raiders. You're right that if it came out in July, they'd have the same complaints. But also at the same time, it's not like the Raiders are preparing for the Super Bowl. Like this happened when they were 3-1, and one, which sure is a nice start to the season. But it's not like the Raiders were Super Bowl favorites and it was like, uh-oh, we've got to derail the Raiders at 3-1 and one and get John Gruden out of there. Like... It, Whatever. Like, sure, they were we doing need Patrick Mahomes to throw more picks. Right. Like, they were doing well to start the season, but it's not like this was some magical Super Bowl run and it was all of a sudden, okay, let's take out John Gruden right now, four weeks into the season. But on the bigger picture, and basically, what else is there? How big of a problem is this across the league? We have basically three people have gotten sideswiped by this John Gruden, Adam Schefter, and Jeff Pash, who's the uh, NFL general counsel there. Also, Bruce Allen, who's been involved in two of these, and somehow, uh, I guess because he's out of the league, it's not as big of a deal or something. But all three of those people have had something, a different issue, but something come up with these emails. The NFL has come out and said, hey, we investigated ourselves, and there are no more emails that uh, use the language John Gruden used, uh, which 
a lot of people didn't believe when the NFL put that out. It might be true in the sense that email's not the number one form of communication for a lot of people, so I could almost believe that. But I think that is ultimately the bigger question and the bigger thing. DeMaurie Smith has come out and said that the players deserve for all of these emails to be released publicly because John Gruden's just one coach. What if somebody playing on another team has their coach saying and thinking the same types of things that John Gruden was saying? I don't know that we're going to get it, though. Like, I don't have much confidence that we're going to have much more in terms of leaks, much more in terms of, oh, here's some more emails that are damning to a different individual within the NFL. Well, keep in mind also that it's not just about the 650,000 emails in the Washington football team investigation that came out of the workplace harassment claims. Um, This also has to do with Dan Snyder being in court with Bruce Allen. And we read that uh, in the aftermath of the John Gruden situation as well, that some of what we've learned came out of that lawsuit. So the more people that we show could have had their hands on these emails or at least seen them, the more reason we have to believe that they are going to have their own agendas and their own reason to put them out there. So I think it's it's dangerous to get into the idea of, hey, uh, the NFL picked October to pick on the Raiders and screw them. I just don't see it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I've never been able to get around the idea of what did the NFL gain by screwing John Gruden and the Raiders at this particular point? The only thing that that I'm not even going to say makes sense. The only thing that comes out to me that fits a narrative that's been there in the past is the old Al Davis. Everyone's out to get the Raiders. Like, sure, if you want to try to play that card, uh, go for it. But you're wrong like that, it just doesn't it, like that that stuff is old and dead and buried that was the funniest part of the twitter reaction to them find like everyone being like it's like we've been saying the nfl's out to get the writers and it's like since when man like and forever jared they're the bad boys everybody hates when the raiders are good that's what well, if it wasn't for the NFL hating on them, they'd have more than one playoff appearance in 17 years, Jared. Oh, yeah. It's not gross incompetence. Roger Goodell's fault. Um, on the Okay, on the Raiders' hey, side of things, and this is where Mark Davis is basically refusing to actually talk to the media except for in a few random comments here and there, uh, kind of pops up because I am very curious the timing from the Raiders' perspective and John Gruden actually resigning because what it looks like from the outside first email is leaked then the NFL sends all these other emails to Mark Davis John Gruden coaches a game two days later on Sunday and then more emails are leaked that look even worse for John Gruden and he ends up resigning because of that my question here on the Mark Davis side is If these had stayed private, like if this idea that the NFL leaked them to get John Gruden out, if these had stayed private, is John Gruden still the coach of the Raiders today? 100%. And I think if only the DeMora Smith email had come out, John Gruden is still the coach of the Raiders today. He and Mark Davis were already fully into, let's try to get this to blow over mode. John Gruden came out Monday afternoon and said, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Like, took the usual Gruden arrogance and applied it to this. Like, yeah, I've I've said what I need to say. Like, I'm sorry for anyone I offended. I don't. I'm not racist. Blah blah blah. Rubber uh, lips. So by the time we got done with that conversation, it was only a few hours later when the NFL or whoever uh, leaked out the rest of the emails that ultimately forced their hands. So yeah, 
undoubtedly he's still the coach. Mark Davis, I don't think, wanted to let him go, even given what came out now. I mean, look, look at the way he's put it. He's put it to say, ask the NFL, they have the answers, as in, they screwed us, they screwed me. No, they didn't screw you. They greased the skids for you to get to Vegas and get $750 million to build a stadium. So the NFL is not out to get you, and they're not out to get John Gruden. Why would the NFL want to tear down John Gruden? The NFL, through ESPN, had helped to prop up John Gruden as the number one analyst in college, in uh, all of football. So why would they want to tear him down? What would be the point? Uh, did Roger Goodell get his feelings hurt by the names that John Gruden called him in emails? Do you think that's the worst Roger Goodell has been called by someone inside the league? He's making $44 million a year. He doesn't care what words John Gruden calls him. So none of that makes any sense either. The the idea of John Gruden would still be the coach if these were not leaked publicly is the one that annoys me every time Mark Davis has said the Raiders are about diversity and inclusion and these emails don't stand for what the Raiders are. Like, he is propping up the Raiders' past of hiring people like Amy Trask and and being a diverse organization when in reality, he did not act on that. Like, he did not act on those ideals, but he is still propping them up as if those are the things that drive him and those are the things that makes his decision. And if, in fact, John Gruden would still be the coach today if those emails had stayed private, Mark Davis can't keep saying that. Like, that's a bold-faced lie that he's telling every single time that he gets asked about this, and that, to me, is what's part of the reason that it's been completely unacceptable the way Mark Davis has handled the last 10 days or so. Well... We are now at 10 days on the Mark Davis silence watch that I started talking about last week on Cofield and Company. He, uh, he hasn't said anything of substance about this whole situation, and it is a complete and total failure of leadership. It is a failure of his legacy. Frankly, it's a failure of goodwill that he built a couple of months ago. Was it that long ago that we were talking about Mark Davis leadership in requiring everyone who goes to a Raiders game to be vaccinated? We said that that was a way in which Mark Davis was stepping forward in the Las Vegas community, stepping forward in the NFL community and pushing us forward. And this not only drags the NFL back, this drags the whole idea of the Raiders back. You can't rest on the legacy that your father built without continuing it. I know this franchise is all about history and legacy. Um, you look at the license plates that are on cars right now. They say Al. They don't say Super Bowl. They say Al. It's about the old owner. It's about what he stood for. And if you're going to do that, then you have no choice but to step forward in a bigger way. And it, it, this isn't the hard one. You don't have to get out there and hold a press conference. It could have been like a three-sentence press release condemning the comments. Just condemn the comments. And if you want to handle the part about John Gruden, how you feel the NFL treated you later, then, then go off and chase that star. But how do you let the rest of what's in those emails sit out there as what's the one word he used? Disturbing for the first email and that be the whole thing? So what you're saying is they need to go out and sign Colin Kaepernick. Got it. Coming up yeah. next, it's Bischoff's <laughs> Briefs. Bischoff's Briefs. I'm afraid we need to use math. Bischoff's Briefs. I knew I should have checked your showboating globetrotter algebra. Bischoff's Briefs. Man, I thought you knew that algebra was all razzmatazz. Bischoff's Briefs. 
Yes, I see. Something involving that many big words could easily destabilize time itself. UNLV football. Lost to Utah State 28-24. UNLV led for almost the entire game before losing in the fourth quarter. It has now been 687 days since UNLV last won a football game. That is the longest streak in program history. And thanks to Adam for letting us know that I should be paying attention to 702. Uh, I believe if my math is correct, that's going to come on November 2nd. Uh, So they're going to have two chances here to win a game before November 2nd. Otherwise, they will hit the 702 mark for days without a win. It is 12 straight losses, if we're counting games, for Marcus Arroyo. Now, there's a couple things in this game that jump out on the Marcus Arroyo side. First first off, the fourth quarter play calling. This was where a lot of UNLV fans were jumping on. I don't have too big of an issue with it. I think at the end of the day, Utah State just bottled up Charles Williams finally in the fourth quarter. Like it took them three quarters, but they finally decided, oh, we should sell out to stop the run. And they got some stops there. And that's why UNLV had to punt. They were not good in the fourth quarter. Uh, I believe they're before their final drive that they had like 30 seconds on. I think it was 19 yards on 12 or 17 yards on 12 plays is what they had on their last four drives uh, of the game. Again, the quarterback play isn't great for this team. They've got to run the ball and run it well. And Charles Williams did for the majority of the game. But they once they slowed that down, it was kind of it. I don't know there's too much blame on Arroyo. My bigger issue, and we have seen this multiple weeks now in games where UNLV has had a chance, it is end of the first half and Marcus Arroyo being happy and content to go into the locker room with whatever the score is. Utah State had a third and 35. The clock was at 150, and Marcus Arroyo did not call a timeout. He watched Utah State run the clock down. And then Utah State gained five yards on the play. And luckily for UNLV, the wide receiver ran out of bounds to stop the clock. It's now fourth and 30. Utah State lined up to go for it. Again, it's fourth and 30. And Marcus Arroyo burned a timeout. He didn't call one to save the clock. He called one because he was afraid that Utah State might pick up a fourth and 30. Utah State just wanted to get him to jump offside, so I assume they could have a free play, a free shot down the field. UNLV didn't jump offsides, and Utah State ended up trying a 52-yard field goal and missing. So UNLV then took over on their own 35-yard line, just over a minute to play with two timeouts. Now, again, if Arroyo had managed this better, they would have had two timeouts in about a minute 40 left on the clock, or if he doesn't burn his timeout on 4th and 30, they'd at least have three timeouts. They get the ball back. 35-yard line, over a minute. First play, they hand it off. Or excuse me, first play, they get called for holding. So it's now first and 20. And then on the first and 20 play, they hand it off to Charles Williams. Looks like they're going to go into the locker room happy with their lead. They decide, no, they go hurry up for some reason. Run the ball for six yards. That was enough to say, all right, let's go hurry up. Almost an interception from Cameron Friel. It's now third and 14 and he runs the ball to kill the clock. He mismanaged the clock when he had a chance to get the ball back with more time, and then tried to score, tried to run the clock out, tried to score, tried to run the clock out, was basically his every other play changing what his thought process was on that final drive. 
These types of things have happened multiple times this year. Arroyo continues to display. He's in over his head when it comes to simple clock management at the end of halves. And really, the only reason we haven't seen it at the end of a regular uh, end of the fourth quarter is because they haven't really been in many games at the end of the fourth quarter. There's zero confidence in Marcus Arroyo actually managing clocks and managing this team to steal an extra possession to win a close game, which is what they've now lost a couple of times this year. And that is the key, is to steal a close game. Because what we're seeing is that this UNLV team is not as bad as it looked in the first few weeks. Um, but they don't have the talent to be able to just go out and straight up beat other teams right now. They have to be able to steal edges. There have to be ways for them to maximize what they have. And things like taking advantage of extra possessions, things like managing the clock properly are those things. I'm not going to bury Marcus Arroyo yet on that. I'm realistically 12 games as a coach. I mean, Anthony Lynn got a lot longer than that, not being able to manage a clock uh, (laughs) with the uh, San Diego and Los Angeles Chargers. But it is something that needs attention. And it's one of many things that need attention with UNLV. It it just, there are so many things going on with this program right now that it, it feels like you almost don't even worry as much about it because you feel like, okay, but if we start focusing on that, it's going to be taking attention away from other things that need to be worked on with this team uh, that you know clearly are higher priorities. One of the biggest issues for UNLV is that they cannot have a healthy quarterback. Like it, 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 it's, it's like got to be against the rules this year. It, they cannot do it. They have not had a quarterback start and finish a game this season. And Doug Brumfield was not available to play in the game on Saturday against Utah State. So Cameron Friel got the start. And Cameron Friel almost got through it all until he suffered an injury in the fourth quarter. And Justin Rogers had to take over. And it wasn't very good from Justin Rogers. We've seen that multiple times this year. But now you're you're looking at a team. And we haven't gotten an injury update. I think Arroyo talks today to the media. So maybe there'll be something there about they play on Thursday. It's a short week, short turnaround. Is Doug Brumfield available a few days later after he wasn't on Saturday? Is Cameron Friel able to come back? Because that's going to be a big determining factor is if they have a legitimate shot to beat San Jose State. If you told me they have Doug Brumfield ready to go against San Jose State, I think they've got a legit shot to win that game. If they don't have Brumfield, if they don't have Cameron Friel, and we're talking about Justin Rogers or maybe Tate Martell, I don't think they've got a legit shot to beat San Jose State. So... That's one of maybe the biggest issue for this entire season is that the quarterback play has either been bad or even at times when we've seen somebody look competent there, they get hurt and can't play anymore. Even if UNLV had a healthy functioning quarterback, you could assume that San Jose State is going to stick seven or eight in the box and say, beat us. Go ahead and throw it. Right? They're not going to let Charles Williams beat them. And they have the front seven to do whatever they want. So... San Jose State could be in a position to hold the Rebels to, what, 10 points, 14 points, and that should be more than enough for them, uh, considering what we've seen? Should be. You'd think so. Um, By the way, I want to point out one more thing. Marcus Arroyo chose Justin Rogers to be the starting quarterback in the first game of the season. Yep. Never forget. (laughs) What? (laughs) He's, at best, the third best quarterback on the roster. Tate Martell's probably better. He's at best the third the, best quarterback. Well, we also have to we have to ask the question with the Tate Martell thing, where after the game, Marcus Arroyo said, "Yeah, he still doesn't really have the full grasp of the offense. We didn't have the package of plays." 
you've played six games. Yeah, that's... Like, at what point is he going to be usable if not now? I, I don't understand. Like, you had exactly the situation against Utah State where you're like, all right, break glass in case of emergency. Throw him out there and see what happens. And instead, you went back to the one guy that you know can't get the job done. Tate Martell wasn't here in spring ball. And we all know if you don't have spring practice, how are you going to learn anything? Coming up next, Mike Gravala joins the show. Prescription. He's never seen a steak that is too gray. He once ate half a box of Cheez-Its for lunch and finished off the other half for dinner. He has eaten exactly one taco in his life. He is Mike Grillmala. Have tacos changed that much since I tried one? Mike Grillmala from the Las Vegas Sun. Uh, all right, Mike. Who is a better in-game coach, Tony Sanchez or Marcus Arroyo? That's a good question. Uh, you know, Tony Sanchez, I would have to give him the nod at this point just because obviously he won games. And also, I feel like there was a coherence to what he was trying to do on offense. Like you could describe, you know, it was zone read, it was running quarterback, it was big offensive line, like you knew the, the offense at least had an identity, you knew what their game plan was, and, you know, sometimes they executed it to the point where they were scoring, you know, 30-plus points a game for an entire season, and they would win games. So, I probably Sanchez, I would say. Um, Mike, would Armani Rogers be the UNLV starting quarterback right now? Uh, I think that goes without saying. Like, he's, that's he is not a guy who who you know staying healthy was an issue for Armani when he when he was here as well, but there were also times when he played entire games, which is something that this team could definitely use. And I'm not I'm not joking. I'm not I'm not joking. Like they they can't get one quarterback to last through an entire game, and it's costing them games. Like they just they can't. They just don't have guys that can stay healthy for sixty snaps, and they're losing because of it. Uh. Do you have any idea who's going to start for him on Thursday? Like, how do you think Brumfield has a chance to come back? Is Cameron Friel going to be able to play that quickly? Uh, who knows? We, we they they're not practicing. They moved practice back to tonight. I guess they're having a night practice, so we won't know anything until after that. Um, the Marcus Arroyo will have his press conference this afternoon. He'll probably give an update. I mean, the way Friel came out of that game, it's tough to imagine him coming back. You know, three days later uh, and playing. So. It'll probably be a question of how healthy can Bromfield get uh, in the meantime, or if not, then you're probably looking at Justin Rogers. So, all right, we have to reset this once again because Utah State did appear to be the spot that a lot of folks had pegged as UNLV's best chance at a win. Uh, given what you've seen thus far, uh, where else on the schedule, if anywhere, do you see a spot for UNLV to get a victory? Uh, they go to... New Mexico in a few weeks. You know, that's a team that hasn't looked great. Um, they host Hawaii right after that. It's like that's, um, I would have to look at the schedule for the exact dates, but I think they got San Jose State, then Reno and Halloween. Then I think it's New Mexico and Hawaii back-to-back. Uh, and I think one of those two games, like that's probably your last chance, is either beat New Mexico on the road or beat Hawaii at home. And if not, you're looking at 0-12. Uh, 
Oh, and 12. Always fun. Um, how big of a concern is this? So Marcus Arroyo has had two of the top two recruiting classes in the Mountain West in the last two seasons, but his best quarterback option this year is a Tony Sanchez recruit. His best offensive player in Charles Williams is a Tony Sanchez player, and his best defensive player in Jacoby Windham is a Tony Sanchez player. How big of a concern is that? I would say it's a huge concern because the whole deal, the, like Marcus Arroyo, the whole the promise, you know, the premise of his coaching tenure is that he's going to out recruit everyone in the Mountain West. You know, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's the type of uh, coaching staff where like they're going to come in and out scheme everyone and blow everyone away with these amazing X's and O's. I think their plan is to we're going to just recruit the best class every single year, and eventually we will just overwhelm this conference with talent and. If their recruits aren't getting that done, then that's you know obviously a huge issue, um, and you've got to start seeing those results soon. Like I was thinking the other day, you know, the offensive line, like they they've got to start recruiting offensive linemen who can block and who are capable and who can do it now. Like, <laughs> no, man, I I know these statements they they come out they sound like jokes, but I, these are not punchlines. It's just. The, the state of the program. They need, you know, they, they need guys who can play for an entire game and do their job. Well, yeah, like um, not to single out any you know particular players, but you know they, they're starting a or they were starting a, a a freshman tackle, and he had a bad game, and then Marcus Rowe came out and said, you know, um, he he's clearly he's not capable of it now, but in a couple of years he'll be really good, which is fine if you want to develop a recruit into a good player, but that begs the question: like, why is he starting now? Like, if he's going to be good in a couple years and he can't do it now, well, why is he starting now? So they've just they've got to recruit better players and players who are capable of playing now, um, or else you're just going to keep losing. Is there any correlation, do you think, Mike, between whether UNLV wins a football game, two football games, etc., this year and how a new athletic director will view Marcus Arroyo? Uh, do you, or do you think it's just a matter of looking at this program in general as yet yeah, they're in the tank and I have to, you know, treat this as a complete and total rebuild or, or do you think that someone comes in and is looking for some signs of progress with Marcus Arroyo before they just decide to bring their own person in? I guess that decides, uh, I guess that depends on the specific person that they hire and what their philosophy is. I mean, 0 and 12 and then 0 and 18 and, you know, back to back winless seasons is, uh, there's no way to around that. That's a bit radioactive, I would say, um, to have on your resume with a new athletic director coming in. I do think Marcus Arroyo, you know, he's, he's going to get another year at least, no matter who they hire. Um, but it, it depends on the, the person that they hire, um, I don't know what. What do you? It's it's hard to. I don't want to say like it's an automatic uh, thing, but you know, zero and eighteen. You, there's really no other way around it. It's going to be a huge thing. If one and seventeen or one and eleven looks so 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 much better than zero and twelve, and I think it means a lot to the. It probably means a lot more to the players and the team itself than it does to the AD, just because I think the players really need it. Like you could see, they're getting worn down. They're getting um, a little bit frazzled. We're seeing it on the field. They're getting less disciplined as the season goes on. We're seeing more outbursts. It's like the players need a win. They need some sort of positive reinforcement that we're not just banging our head against the wall and um, nothing's going to change. They need it more than probably an athletic director needs to see it. 
Yeah, my guess on timeline here is they're supposedly going to hire a new athletic director in like January or February of next year. I'd find it unlikely that a new AD comes in and like the first thing they do is fire the football coach. So Arroyo's going to get next season as well, and that will be the true proving ground. Well, let me ask you this, because next year, let's say they go 0-12 this year. Next year, the definition of progress would be 1-11. Does Arroyo deserve credit for the progress this team has made right now? Like They're certainly better now than they were at the beginning of the year and than they were last year. Does he deserve credit for that, or are we looking at this as though, well, you took over a four-win program and it's all of a sudden can't get anything, so progress to close loss doesn't count? I would say probably more the, the second option. Like this team, like when when Tony Sanchez was fired, they were a bad team, but they were by no means the worst team in the country. You know, they were winning four games a year. You know, you could expect them to win four games. They won five games one year under Sanchez. Yeah, and sure, there were some historic losses and some really damaging um, performances sprinkled in there. But uh, I didn't think it was a complete, you know, tear down. Like, and you came in with a new facility and a new stadium and all this. So I, I didn't think it was a complete teardown. To, so to take such a substantial step backward from what Sanchez uh, was able to accomplish, that's uh, pretty concerning. But like I said, like, as you were saying, I don't expect a new AD to come in and clean house immediately. I think we saw sort of a, a similar timeline with Marvin Menzies and Desiree Reed-Francois. Marvin Menzies had two years of incremental progress, but you know ultimately it was underwhelming. Desiree, Desiree Reed-Francois came in, gave him one more season, sort of gave her a chance to get her feet wet, get the lay of the land on the job, sort of back channel a little bit, build up her list of candidates. And then when, after that first season that she was here, you know, that Marvin Menzies got the ax as soon as the season was over. So I think that's probably a timeline you're looking at. If a new AD comes in, they're probably going to want to see something, um, a big, big, big step forward from Marcus Arroyo in year three. And then the decisions would be made after that. Mike, Mike. Uh, hang on. Uh, this game on Thursday against San Jose State is a late night start against the worst fan base in the Mountain West. Um, how many people do you think are going to be at this game? <laughs> it was kind of amazing to see. Not amazing. It was um, th- this this past game against uh, that they ju- they just played. It was like, it was the first time at Allegiant Stadium that they were playing. It wasn't the first game. It wasn't against Iowa State, you know, a team that travels. It was like the first normal home game at Allegiant Stadium. And it, I thought the crowd was pretty underwhelming. You know, they probably had more than half of the lower bowl filled. They announced the crowd of, I think, 20,000 for the game. <laughs> but that was, I would say, probably the actual bodies in the building, probably six or 7,000. So um, that's probably, I, prob- I expect even less for a Thursday night game against San Jose State. It's, probably going to be pretty sparse did they give the concession workers tickets uh mike i gotta ask which uh which jambalaya was your favorite uh from the press box dude i didn't i didn't go near that jambalaya (laughs) it's it's it sounds fun it sounds like a festive um cuisine but i did not have any uh yeah i didn't i didn't partake in that there's like at least seven ingredients in there there's no chance mike's eating seven things okay. at one time well the the rice was it was three types of rice with the uh, with i believe celery in it so did you did you get the rice no no it was, it was i looked at it and i i had never seen jambalaya before <laughs> you know i've heard of it and i was picturing 
not something so thin. It was so thin and watery. I was, I was when I see jambalaya in my head, what I was picturing was like a thick, viscous, like stew, like chunky kind of stew concoction. But this was very thin and gruelish. <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't, no, no. I just kept walking. I think I think you're describing Sasquatch. Well, I'd never seen it before, but I'd heard of this jambalaya. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What'd yeah, you eat? Hold uh, on. What did you eat instead? Yeah, did you I was eat say, Did you eat the cobbler? Cobbler? No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't do that. <laughs> but I had. Prepared, I prepared for the for this possibility. Um, I had some candy. I brought my own candy. <sighs> like you know, like when you go to the movies and you sneak in your own contraband. That's kind of what I did for the game. So I was okay. Nutritious Kit Kat bar for dinner. Kit Kat. And a Nestle's Crunch. Look so you. Look at we're you. all set. Don't yeah. worry about me, man. I always take care of myself when it comes to you know, feeding myself during these games. Take care of is a one way to put it. He's Mike Gravala from the Las Vegas Sun. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right, here we go. We've got a fifty dollar gift certificate for Smoking Pig Barbecue Company. They're out uh, Las Vegas Boulevard North. Open seven days a week from eleven a.m. to nine p.m. Very delicious place. It's awesome. Uh, go out and get the wolf turts. They're very good. Okay. Or the chicken lollipops. Lollipops. I was going to say chicken popsicles. What, what did chicken you call Chicken popsicles. Lollipops. Chicken, chicken, lolli- chicken drumstick wrapped in bacon. It's delicious. 702-364-1100 is the number. We got 50 bucks to go to Smoke and Pig Barbecue Company. We'll take caller number 10 at 702-364-1100 to go to Smoke and Pig Barbecue. Brought to you by Finley Toyota. We're here for you. Not only will we make an impact and change anything we're doing, we're all the men in that room. So if we're in that submarine right now, all right, something happens wrong in that submarine, there's got to be someone on that ship to step up and save that thing, right? You spring a leak, someone's got to plug that thing for you. No one's coming. They don't get there in time to help you if you don't fix it yourselves. You're locked in the press box. Congratulations to Sal. He won the 50 bucks to go to Smokin' Pig Barbecue Company. Uh, Adam, which submarine has more holes in it? The New York Giants as a football team or Washington's Sean Taylor Jersey retirement celebration? It is 100% the Jersey retirement celebration. And I want to give appropriate credit here. Uh, Chad Ryan, who covers the Washington football team from Australia, uh, (laughs) uh, posted this on Twitter. I, uh, I can't believe this. Um, so the hastily called Sean Taylor uh, ceremony that happened in Washington that definitely was not an attempt to distract from the WFT investigation <laughs> that was called three days in advance. Um, the road was rededicated in front of porta potties, and there is a picture of Sean Taylor's family with the sign saying Sean Taylor Road with porta potties in the background. Uh, the sideline number and not tribute one. was hold on to cut you off. Not one, like seven porta potties are in the background here. Yes, that's why I use the <laughs> S as a plural. Uh, the sideline number tribute was in the area where <laughs> VIPs stand, so they were literally standing on the number twenty-one on the field. The halftime ceremony involved no speeches or recognition, but maybe here's the best part: the owner wore a hoodie to the pregame yep. meeting with the family. Daniel Snyder is wearing a hoodie two sizes too big and old navy khakis to meet with sean taylor's family so anyone who said oh yeah yeah they had the plans they just they kind of forgot to put them in place nah bruh nah they couldn't even get the distraction right (laughs) 
Dan Snyder dresses about how I dressed to come to a radio show to meet Sean Taylor's family before uh, retiring his jersey. Uh, did you see the Jackson Mahomes controversy? I did. Oh. I did. And uh, and let's c- c- can we just lay off Jackson Mahomes? Come on now. Oh, you feel bad for the TikTok star. I feel bad for the TikTok star. Oh, yeah. this I, is like, great. For, because okay, for those of you that don't know, Jackson Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes' brother, very popular on TikTok, does a lot of TikTok dances. He filmed one yesterday on the sideline of the Washington-Kansas City game. He just happened to be in the VIP area, which is where the Sean Taylor 21 was painted onto the field as the little memorial tribute there. And he got ripped for dancing on that 21. But now, as we have found out, that's just where it it was roped off to where that's where the VIP people were supposed to be standing. So that's where Jackson Mahomes was standing to watch the end of the game. That's where do you want the kid to go? (laughs) He's he's standing where he's supposed to stand. It's Dan Snyder's fault that the VIPs were roped on to Sean Taylor's number. Oh, my God. They definitely planned this. You are 100% right, (laughs) Adam. And... Jackson Mahomes, his tweet to apologize. He said, I want to sincerely apologize for accidentally being on the Sean Taylor number 21. He threw the Dan Snyder under the bus. We were directed to stand in that area, and I meant absolutely no disrespect to him or his family. Oh, it's phenomenal. Washington football team. What a disaster. (laughs) This guy in a hoodie came over and said, stand here, so I stood here. Like, so let me let me ask you a question. Since we're asking about the Giants too, Tyler, because I, I was thinking about this as, <laughs> as Jared played uh, Joe Judge once again coming back. I think that's four or five times today. Um, so no would we stuff. be better with Joe Judge if his name were Judge Joe? Like if it were some sort of like a fun Judge Judy sort of thing. Yes, right? absolutely. If his like name if his was name Judge, Judge Joe, Joe it'd be yes. like Judge Joe is coming. What's he going to say today? Right? Like that'd be fun. Because I feel like plugging holes on a submarine is probably some sort of line from Judge Judy. And if it was Judge Joe that said that, we'd be like, yeah, absolutely. We got, yeah, that makes sense. We're plugging holes You're on a submarine. You're trying to plug holes in a submarine to me, and that's, I don't, I will not accept it. Yeah, I, I think yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. We would enjoy yeah. it much more. Yeah, I'm glad we cashed the uh, the ticket on Will Jared do a Judge Judy impression. <laughs> What's it like to be a fan of the New York Giants and they're not the biggest embarrassment in the division? Oh, it's glorious because <laughs> no matter how bad our ownership is, there's still Danny Snyder <laughs> in his hoodie. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Cowboys are just going to go like 50 or 16 and one this year because that division is so terrible. <laughs>